I'm not too worried about keeping the investors in a good state of mind to keep buying because, you know, we can't slow down the investors. You know, a lot of people we work with are very sophisticated investors and we're lucky. Like, you know, when I say, you know, I'm doing 275 transactions and 80% are investors, like our clients aren't buying negative cash flow condos in downtown Toronto. They're buying duplex, triplex, fourplex in tertiary, secondary markets where they have large degrees of cash flow. So really the conversation just goes back to the fundamentals and being stricter on your fundamentals than maybe you were before. So if you're looking to do you know, a cash flowing rental property, well, you might need a larger cash flow margin to accommodate for some potential vulnerability in the interest rate market than before. So you might want to be stricter on your cash flow margins when it comes to things like a flip or something that's short term, it's a riskier time to do that. So I think honesty about that will buy you a lot more credibility with your clients than than trying trying to to type it or something you're spinning. Yeah, trying to spin some version. The most inspiring stories from today's most successful mortgage brokers. Join your host, Scott Peckford, on I Love Mortgage Brokering. Hey, Broker Nation. Scott Peckford here. Today in the show, I have the Perez brothers, Josh and Jacob from Synergy Mortgage. And this has been an interesting conversation. I normally only have one guest on the show, but it was kind of cool to talk to both of them about how they built their businesses. And they both have a hundred plus million dollar a year business. So Jacob is actually one of the coaches in our 10 loans a month academy. And I first met him four years ago when he was a new mortgage broker and he took our training program. Last year he funded 131 million and he's crushing it. His older brother did 151 million. Of course, the older brother always has to try to win. Who knows how long that will continue for these guys. But in any case, a couple of takeaways from this conversation. First, they both have hundred million dollar businesses and they both serve the same audience primarily. So they are focused on helping people build wealth through real estate. So a lot of investment clients and a lot of deals that are like two for one. So refi purchase or, you know, somebody who buys three, four or five properties. But the way Josh built it rather was he did it based on relationships. So he focused on key partnerships, relationships with people that could refer lots of business so realtors and people that are in the investment space. Jacob, on the other hand, started a few years later and he decided to use content marketing using forums, other content, Instagram to get people to find out who he was, writing articles that drove traffic to him and turned into business. And so the whole point is, is that if you're clear on who you're serving, so in this case, it's in people that want to buy investment property, there are multiple paths to get there. And these guys have shown that that is absolutely the case. So I think you're going to enjoy this conversation. We dive into some of the leads of this. Uh, before jumping into this episode, I want to give a shout out to our title sponsor, Finmo. Finmo is a Canadian mortgage application document collection platform designed specifically for Canadians. It's very easy for borrowers to use. And it's also very easy for brokers. And one of the cool things is as they're filling out the app, it's automatically figuring out what documents your client needs. When that application comes in, you can go and search Lender Spotlight, which gives you all the rates and guidelines from all the lenders, lets you know where to send it. And then finally, when you go to hit submit, it's pulling key data from the application, puts it in the lender notes in a really easy to read manner. Because your lender on the other side, all their systems are different. Finding the information is challenging. Make it easy for your lender. They're going to give you more yeses. You can check them out at lendescom slash Finmo to get a free demo to check it out. Check that out. And in the Ask the Expert segment today, I talked to Ben McCabe about the recent OFSI guidelines for reverse mortgages. So OFSI did not have any guidelines for reverse mortgages, and they recently added some. Hey guys, welcome to the show. Thanks for having us, Scott. Really appreciate it and excited to chat with you today. So yeah, I'm excited to chat with you guys too. I think you've built a pretty unique business model and there's a bunch of stuff I want to dive into and ask you guys about. But before I do, maybe Jacob, if you want to just 
give me a little background on, you know, who you are and when you got into the mortgage business. Yeah. So I've been on podcasts before. So some people may have heard my story, but in general, I've been in the mortgage industry. This is my fifth year. So, you know, I was from the corporate world. I was investing in real estate a lot, but I didn't really have any type of banking background. So when I came into mortgages, I thought, you know, I was going to blow the roof off. My brother was a mortgage agent. He was doing pretty well. And I thought anything he could do, I could do better probably. And yeah, there's um, no the competition first, in your family at all, right? None. Zero. Yeah. yeah. So <laughs> the, the first year was super tough, right? A lot harder than anticipated. I ended up really lucky. I ended up doing about 72 files. My second year was about 119. Then I hit 175. And last year, my fourth year, I did 275 files and uh, over 130 million in production. And then you know, it's been growing this brokerage, iterating our process and, you know, the same struggles, I think that everyone kind of goes through in the industry type of thing. Right. And how about you, Josh, tell me a little bit about your background, how you into the mortgage business. Yeah. So I originally left the bank. I was at CIBC, one of the big banks until the end of 2014. And so uh, I started fresh as a mortgage broker, mortgage agent, Jan 2015. So I'm into my seventh year of mortgage brokering and life-changing transition. It's been amazing. But also, you know, even though I was working at the bank from 2009 to 2015, so I kind of was, you know, typical bank advisor, FSR, jack of all trades, not really a master expert in any of those things. So it's helping people on the investment side of things as well as mortgages. And what really kind of got me shifting to look at mortgages more full-time was starting to invest in real estate in 2010. And I started to accumulate property with a couple of buddies who are you know, partners now. Just the light bulb kind of went off in terms of what I was passionate about and what I could see I could potentially help a lot of other people out with by having access to different lenders and really trying to hold my craft and specialize in just the mortgage side of things, which is tied, tied to real estate. So yeah, I made the leap uh, in, in 2015. It's been amazing. Really couldn't imagine what this could have led to both, you know, personally and professionally. It's an amazing industry. I get a lot of fulfillment out of it. There's definitely a lot of challenges and stresses. And, you know, we look at today, you know, pop and interest rates, which is going to be a hot topic, but, you know, at the end of the day, we got to be here to help people, but I'm a firm believer in, you know, what we get to do every day for people in their lives is extremely meaningful and, and I wouldn't trade it for anything. So yeah, great, great spot to be for sure. Right. And so a question on that. So when you left CIBC, you were doing a bit of everything. So did you do mortgages at CIBC? How did that work? Yeah. So I was, uh, when I left CIBC, my last role was financial advisor in Imperial service. So basically I had a book of clients that had, you know, a certain deemed net worth mainly attributed to like the amount of funds they had invested in say mutual funds, but also I was servicing them around mortgage needs, credit card, bank account, RSPs, mutual funds. And the thing that was just like a little bit disappointing there is regardless of you know, having goals and targets around mortgages, when you really saw how you were incentivized and rewarded around them, things like credit cards and bank account sales and insurance on an unsecured line of credit would reward you a lot more in actual bonus dollars than a mortgage transaction. What's better for the client? Helping them, you know, potentially get an investment property, whatever. So yeah, my wife actually many years ago, she worked for CIBC Imperial Service and she found this exact same thing. Nothing against CIBC, but just the... That the priority was, hey, get them a new credit card. She's like, they don't need one. They're good. Like, you know, and so, okay. So, you know, when I chatted with you guys before, you both built your businesses, kind of a, both of you have a focus around helping people build investment portfolios, but you did it a little bit differently. So maybe Josh, I'll start with you. Tell me about how you got your business going. Because I mean, last year you did 150 million, 285 files. And what percentage of that would you say was in that space of like investment type clients? Well, my first yeah. question, then I want to know how you got there. 
Yeah. So I'd say my mortgage transactions that were either like around a rental property or say a client refinancing a property for the purposes of, you know, accessing capital to invest, say like in the down payment, probably I'm like in the 60, 50 to 60% range of clients I've helped that are related to an investment purpose. And the other, you know, 40, 50% is, you know, first time home buyers, secondary home or someone selling and buying a new primary residence. Right. What about you, Jacob? What was your uh, percent you think of your 275 files were had something to do with investment, refi purchase kind of thing? I'm probably upwards of like 80%, I would say, in my book specifically. So it's a lot of those rental transactions. The thing that people, I think, you guys have obviously figured this out, is that you can have one client and get way more transactions per client. And so your number of clients may not be any higher than somebody else, but your number of transactions is significantly higher because of sometimes it's two, sometimes it's three, like you can stack them up. So Josh, you were a bank specialist who had a massive network of like clients that you took with you and you left CIBC. So how did you get to, you know, 150 million in such a short period of time? Yeah. So in the early days, I would say it was really about kind of building my foundation of COIs, like center of influence, ultimately like referral accounts. So, you know, realtor relationships were a big piece of what my daily and weekly activities consisted of trying to meet more and more real estate agents and try to, you know, get to know their business, what was important to them and generally try to be a resource to their business. Ultimately, you know, the end goal is hopefully doing business with them and having them trust me enough to send them leads. But then also, you know, every, and I think this plays into today for myself, I'm sure for Jacob, for everyone in our organization is, you know, treating and serving our clients like to the best ability possible and delivering great service. And for us and our kind of core values, it's around, you know, two main things, you know, service and like speed, as well as like, expert advice in whatever they want to do, whatever their goals are, potentially opening up their mind to other possibilities that they didn't know were possible in building. So wait, okay, let me ask you a question on that because your business is so heavily sort of investment type clients. When you met with these centers of influence referral partners, did you tell them this is my focus or did you happen there by accident? Like, I'm curious. Yeah. So I would say like, you know, it was kind of, you know, as you're getting to know, you know, a referral partner or anyone in a relationship, you know, you chat about things that, you know, you're involved with, especially when it's more of a professional conversation. And naturally, you know, investing in real estate is something that is very popular and mainstream now, but, you know, in 2015, it still was, but, you know, I'd always share kind of my experiences, what I was doing with my recent project, what I was searching for. And naturally that would kind of spark a conversation with certain real estate agents that, you know, were helping clients on the investment side of things. And then they weren't even investing themselves. And I really tried to encourage and inspire and also educate them on the benefits of like, Hey, listen, like not only for yourself and your family, but like think of the whole client base. This could kind of open up for you. Right. If you're taking that time to not just, not to say that you're not doing a, you know, service for the client with, you know, them buying a home in that transaction, but like you can go a bit deeper and talk to them about building wealth and the opportunity that stands in a home and in the equity that they have, you know, that could really, really help you a lot. And so kind of, you know, sharing client experiences on that end, or like, you know, if a realtor refers me to someone to a client to pre-approve them say, Hey, you know, also I might chat with them about, you know, they also have access to this. And what I might introduce them to is how they can put this to use in terms of, you know, potentially buying a rental property. Right. And so because you were actually living it yourself, it was easy to talk about those things and then you naturally attracted. So it sounded like the way you built your business, at least your pipeline is through just those relationships, one-to-one, you know, getting people to know, like, and trust you. And then Jacob, you kind of come in a couple of years later and you have a different strategy. So why don't you walk me through sort of, you're serving the same audience, but you've sort of attacked the problem differently. Tell me about what you did there. 
Yeah. So I think, you know, to sum it up like easily, but I'll elaborate is that Josh's strategy is very business to business. And my strategy is very business to consumer, right? So if you look at the way I would approach it is, you know, when I came in, I tried doing all the real estate stuff, right? I tried to meet with all the realtors, but, you know, I worked in an office with four very busy mortgage brokers and it felt like every single top producing realtor in Hamilton already kind of worked with one of them. So I wasn't even allowed to go. Yeah, exactly. You're like, dang it, you're already working with my brother. Like, so if if, your brother had already tied up that referral partnership, you had to think of a different way to find the clients. hundred percent. And I'll give a little bit of game for the listeners who are new as one thing I've tried to do was one thing I just go, where do my consumers live and how could I be influential in that area? So one place I went to was a really popular real estate investment forum and just posting in the forum and helping investors and developing relationships. I was able to pull 29 deals my first year off of one specific forum online. Right. right. So I was just saying, Hey, here's how you deal with the tenant doing this. Here's how you find a contractor for renovation. Here's how you do this. And I take those conversations to the phone and then generate a re- So in this forum, was it video or text-based? It was probably text-based, All right? text-based. And the good thing about, you know, content, especially written content is that it lives forever. So people might be reaching out to you in a direct message about something you wrote a year ago, something you wrote right. six months ago, because they're searching those threads And then now. you show an intelligent answer and they go, hey, this person, so you did that. What other kind of things did you do to grow your business so quickly? I started writing articles about investing in real estate, about house hacking, about things. Some of my articles actually got picked up by Realtor.ca. Some big publications actually guest posted some of my things. So my influence started to build faster. And then I tried to snowball that influence by writing more articles, but also getting featured on as many podcasts as possible, right? So now all of a sudden it was like really like a branding play. There wasn't very much like calculated thoughts with it. It was very much just, I'm going to do everything I possibly can in this realm. Right. And from there, I was able to, you know, generate a lot of business. And then, you know, in the end, that's going to help you get referral partners and things like that, because, you know, they look at you from a marketing perspective, they might look at you or Josh, like and myself from a portfolio perspective, like when you have 20 multifamily properties, and you're sitting across the table from a realtor who has no investment properties, the power dynamic in that conversation has completely flipped from the mortgage agent trying to get business from the realtor to Hey, you know, the mortgage agent could be like my coach to teach me things. Right. right? right. So that's really helped flood the power dynamic, which uh, I think is important for mortgage agents as well. Yeah. And so it sounds like you did like educational based content, whether it was text or whatever. And then Jacob was more around one-to-one key relationships, key accounts, channel accounts, whatever you want to call them that could turn into multiple but you end up serving the same type of client. You just get there differently, mm-hmm. which is super cool. So let me ask you, I always like to talk about leads, teams, and systems, which we'll talk about. So in terms of team, you I mean, you guys are crushing a lot of mortgages. You've got a third partner as well. What do you have for a setup for team? Maybe Josh, you can answer this first, and then I'll come to you, Jacob. So tell me about what you got for team structure. Yeah. So right now we have, as you just kind of alluded to, we've got you know our three partners, myself, Jacob, and Greg. And basically that's kind of typically where the majority of the leads that come into our team come from. So we drive kind of the sales, the lead gen of everything that kind of comes in. And then from there, we have four underwriters. And again, like sometimes started to not like the title for the role, right? Because they're not just submitting files to lenders and fulfilling them. They're also part of the client journey and the sales process as well. So there's four of them that kind of help us basically each partner or whoever sources the lead tag teams a file with one of our underwriters. We have two people working on every client file from start to finish. And then there's just different levels of involvement by each person, the broker and the underwriter every step of the way. So, you know, for the majority of clients, you know, right now we're at a stage where we're doing probably like 65 to 70% of our opening calls with our clients, probably close to maybe 50 to 75% of our pre-approval calls 
with our clients. And then after that, so in between that, you know, so the application doc retrieval stage, as well as, you know, checking in on the house hunt and ultimately, you know, maybe a pre-offer call and submitting the file and taking it to closing. That's, I'd say, we're more heavily involved by the underwriter at that yeah. stage. We do have goals within our organization right now because we really want to keep driving lead generation and growth. And so for that to happen, you know, myself, Greg and Jake got to spend a lot more time doing that, looking at new ideas, different opportunities, building more relationships. And so we have targets around what we call like start to finish. So literally taking, you know, a certain percentage of leads that come into the organization need to be handled at, you know, 33% or one in three or one in two and working toward that. And also, you know, we're trying to identify and break down our system a little bit more, which Jake might get into a little bit in terms of, you know, looking at getting some help potentially for our underwriting team so that there's capacity. We can still deliver the same level of service and take the time to deliver, you know, expert advice, all the things that kind of contributed to, you know, our database really, really feeding us more and more clients and people to, right. to help. That makes a lot of sense, actually. So the challenge that I've seen with some brokerages is when you have, the more people you have in a file, you've got to have really good systems to keep the customer experience consistent and smooth. So just so I understand, basically three partners, primarily you guys are the salespeople. You've got these underwriting team support that if they pick up the file, it's end to end. And so will you work with all four of them? It just depends on who gets the next one or is, do you get one only? Like, how does that work? It's pretty easy. You know, we work with all four of them and it's based on a couple of things. It's capacity, it's skill set. It might be, hey, they already worked with this client five times before and there's a familiarity there, right? Yeah. But just to kind of, you know, take it a bit further with what Josh was saying and what you were alluding to there, Scott, is that for the customer experience, we try to set ourselves up the same way we like to receive customer experience. So when we're dealing with lenders, we like when the underwriter also does document fulfillment and they have full ownership you over think the You're file. talking like Scotia where it's like end to end versus if a company that has 14 people and you're like, how come at the last minute you're telling me all of a sudden now I need to get you more stuff? Yeah. So, you know, we try to avoid that. We also, there's two things. It's really just, we want full ownership because if everyone's handling a part of the file, nobody fully owns the file. And then the second thing we try to focus on is empowerment. So we try to set up our systems, our templates, our CRM, so that anybody at any point can open up a file, call that client and handle whatever needs to be handled for that client moving forward. The worst thing is when you have somebody who says, hey, you know, that's above my threshold. I'm not allowed to do a mortgage this size or I'm not allowed to speak on this type of topic. Everyone in our organization who speaks to a client can handle every possible thing for that client. And that's what helps us move with a lot more speed. Okay, so let me ask you, how do you find these? Because I would assume they're crushing out like, you know, 15 to sometimes more mortgages a month, 20 mortgages a month plus. How do you find these people? Where do you locate? Because any business like this is dependent on good people. And I'm curious what your strategy is around that. Yeah, you tell us. <laughs> well, how did you find uh, people you have? Maybe there's a better question. We have quite a, a combination of a few different ways. You know, one of our most senior people on our team kind of just morphed and transformed into the role from mine and Greg's early days. You know, he'd be a good person to interview of kind of just seeing the transition of our whole organization from, you know, the old Wild West days with just Greg and I. And then when Jake came in, brought a lot of structure to us and to then implementing traction and that EOS and those kinds of things. So Austin kind of was just like homegrown, right out of university, not really any experience in banking, probably not looking for that background today in our organization. We've gotten a few people from banks in a similar role that I was in when I left. So FSR financial advisor role. So having a little bit of credit experience and uh, customer mortgage. service. So like, it's not yes. just the working, not ever talking to a customer, you're not an FSR with a, you got to talk to customers, right? So, yeah. So that's seemed to have been working, but you know, we beat this 
topic up a lot because, you know, because, you know, we're looking at bringing people into the organization to handle things from end to end, you know, the sales customer service, hunger and persistence part of it is still very important just as much as the credit skills. And it's like, you know, we got to spend time developing both ends of it. Right. Whereas, you know, maybe a couple of years ago, we're like, no, we need the credit skills. We need the credit skills. We need the credit skills. Now, you know, as we're trying to move into more lead gen on a regular basis, we need to empower our team to be able to kind of work the sales angle of closing a lead a little bit more than maybe we did a couple of years ago. So Jake, maybe you can kind of jump in on that end of things that we're trying to brainstorm and beat up right now. Yeah, there's no perfect formula for hiring, right? You know, finding great underwriters is going to be part the person. It's going to be part how you train them, right? So we try to make things as systematized as possible. We're very lucky because we have four underwriters in the organization. So, and we have three major brokers. So when people come in the organization, there's a lot of different people they can learn from. And if one person's training style is not perfect, maybe somebody else's training style is very strong for that person. So we have a little bit of a luck there, as opposed to if you're just a brand new broker with your first hire your one-on-one right like that's all you really have so we have training programs we have that kind of stuff i think really the key is finding the right person who enjoys speaking with people and enjoys yeah. humans and if you could find that you could really train them on the rest of the stuff because it's not rocket science as long as the person wants to be there you know that's yeah. the most important thing that makes a lot of sense so kind of the way you guys have structured your lead gen slightly different but obviously both effective you've got a team that supports you and then tell me about systems. How do you keep track of files? You know, how do you not miss things when you've got hundreds of files flying through your office? So when you guys can maybe answer that. I'll jump in there quick. I mean, it's similar probably to most brokers. So we have a CRM like everyone else. Right? Which one and do you then- use? And we're not saying this is prescriptive. But people always want to know like, because, and again, to me, choosing a CRM for someone else, like choosing their girlfriend, it doesn't usually work. So what do you guys currently use, knowing that it could change if, you know, something? Yeah, we use Airtable. It was kind of like a progression from the Google Sheet that we started with. And basically with Airtable, it's very straightforward. It's like a customized color-coded Excel sheet in a way. And we basically have functionality where we have contact details stored, notes on clients stored, and there's like messaging features within the application. So if we're going to send a quick note to the underwriter on the file, we can kind of log it directly in the file. But I wouldn't yeah. say our CRM is overly sophisticated, but we definitely use it 100% and are committed to it. And that's what makes the difference. And then the other part that allows us to run as well is just we template absolutely everything. So every opening call has the same notation template. Every single time is we're- Is that template in Airtable? So you pull that up and you're like, hey, I'm talking to Jacob or Jacob to Josh. And where's that template kept? We like to keep everything in our Gmail. It's where we live most of the time. So we're basically building out the templates in Gmail for every type of situation. And then some of those templates get copy pasted into the CRM. Sometimes they go direct via email to the client. We have a very detailed customer journey. And then we have templates for every single part of the journey. When a lead is referred, when a client is approved, when a deal is submitted, when a deal is approved, when uh, the deal is broker complete, when the file has closed, like there's a templated touch point for absolutely everything. Right. So all three, there's three salespeople and trying to get three salespeople to do the same thing is never usually hard. (laughs) Do you guys all follow it? Or like, maybe I'll get you to answer that, Josh. What's your experience been like with that? Yeah. So, I mean, personally, I can say today, like the opening call note, pre-call notes, like that's super important to me, live by it. You know, you can't remember every detail of every conversation with everyone you speak to. And the more people you speak to, tougher it's going to be to remember, even if you have a good memory. And I think it's so important to constantly on every conversation, touch point with a client, like 
pull on some of the nuggets you might've learned in the first call. It gets trust, it gets buying, it makes sure that yeah. they know that you're paying attention and learning. And also too, while you know the underwriting side of things isn't rocket science, once you learn it, it's very specific, right? So little nuances here and there, that you might not remember the next time you touch a file going back to your opening node and being like, oh yeah, you know, we could use, you know, CCB income or, you know, this happened or like just little things that you might not have captured. Or they mentioned they have a car loan and on the credit bureau, it didn't have the car loan. Oh shoot, we should maybe double check that. Now the ratios aren't out of whack when they go off around a house, just little things like that, right, or right. whether it's related to the technical stuff or goals is super important. I use it all the time, you know, whether it's these processes and templates or like, you know, the traction model, like organizational goals. It's interesting, you know, what come a long way in the last, you know, two, three years and trying to implement a few things to really treat our business and grow like a real organization and have more structure. And at different times, there's been, you know, obviously like anything, a little bit of resistance in different areas, but I can say for the most part, you know, there's a lot of buy-in Then it wasn't always this way. And there's some pretty fun and interesting conversations behind closed doors from the leadership team from time to time where we battle, but I think it's very healthy and it's all for the purpose of doing good Better. for our organization, for our Better. clients, for our partners, and for ourselves. Yeah. Okay. I want to ask about, so I know that Jacob, you'd mentioned this before about this book Traction, which I read just recently in the last, I don't know, five months. I was like, man, this is a great book. And so maybe just explain the book briefly and then uh, maybe you go ahead, Jacob, on this and then just tell me what was the kind of big takeaway that you guys got that helped you guys grow your business. Yeah. So Traction was a book I got recommended by one of my business coaches. And as soon as I started reading it, it was like, oh, okay, I don't need to read much further than the first chapter. This is going to be the game changer for our mortgage organization. And we had a member of our team, Nisha, our operations manager, and I brought her in to read the book with me and document the book and plan out how we were going to implement it into the organization, right? But basically, Traction, to give you a quick preview of it, is it breaks down several things in an organization all the way down from like your avatars, your responsibilities. So, you know, breaking things down into three functional departments, sales and marketing, finance, and I believe the uh, operations. And then it also tells you like how often you should meet every week, what you discuss during those meetings, how those meetings go from minute by minute. The biggest takeaway I had from the book was definitely that you can never have two people owning one task or owning one department. Nobody owns two- it. Yeah, two people own it, nobody owns it. And like we were the biggest culprits of that. We all owned everything and really in the end, nobody owned anything. And I think once we kind of flipped that, that definitely had big results in our organization. Yeah, it's like if I say to my kid, one of you kids, please you know, put away the dishes. Guess who does it? <laughs> None of them, right? Like you gotta be like yeah. you specifically, you gotta yeah. do it. Okay, so what about for you, Josh? What was the sort of big takeaway that you saw of improvement by applying this system to your business? I think it was just, you know, thinking bigger and just like goal setting and staying on track with all the opportunities that exist in front of us as an organization, but also like trying to implement all the small steps to get you there, whether it's like, you know, a new hire, a new department, launching a new process, changing a process, all these like little things that might not sound super exciting or groundbreaking all these little things can like just add up to being a lot more efficient which can lead to growing and doing more business and serving more people and you know i think any mortgage agent knows that you know from the point of having you know i don't know five to ten files you know a month on your plate like you're a very busy person right just with that and then you know if you want to grow and do more whether you have help or not have help, you know, then you become even more busy. And then if you have people under you that you're managing 
and holding accountable and trying to empower, like you have so much limited time, but if you want to keep doing a bunch of other things, you need people, you need systems, you need structure, right? And just like setting goals with, I want to do hundred million or 300 files or 500 files, you kind of uncover within your organization, Hey, we want to make this process more efficient so we can serve more people or right, right. Um, I have Reduce more time to do this. Improve the customer experience. It seems to me like you guys, and I think of like Alex McFadden and his company, he's always thinking about customer experience and friction. It's like, okay. And then you go back and it's a, a constant evolution of improving process, seeing something. Okay. Do we need a better template? What needs to fix this so that you can serve more people and everything gets better. Yeah. Just one other thing to add there. It's just like, you want to get example, I would say is like, you know, say you're doing, you know, 50 million or something like that, or hundred million, you want to like double that business, right? That's your goal. But then you're like, okay, I'm already working, you know, 40, 50, 60 hours a week already. How is it possible that I can even think of doing that, doubling my business, and I'm already spending this much time? I don't want to double the amount of you hours you want to go to hours working. Yeah. yeah. So how do you do that? It's all like this, working kind of behind the scenes to see where you can free up capacity and change and shift where you're spending your time and expertise and teaching and leveraging other people within your organization or bringing them in to help you out with some of the things that you used to take care of. From wire right. to wire, that, that makes say. a lot of sense. And so, yeah, the whole thing is they call it the EOS model, which is the entrepreneurial operating system, which gives you just a framework for how to think about your business. The meetings are part of it, vision, you know, org chart, who does what. Like for me, it was like a game changer because I think if you're a mortgage broker with just doing 50 million a year and you got one assistant, to me, that's like volleyball. It's like beach volleyball, bump set spike, pretty simple, right? If you're not doing it, I'm doing it. Soon as you start to add in more bodies, the organization gets much more complex. And if you don't have a plan, it to me is more like what you guys are doing and what I'm doing is more like running a football team and you've got offense, defense, special teams, you've got coaches for specific things. It's just the complexity goes up. And if everybody's not clear on their role, where they're supposed to be, it can be chaos. And the customer on the back is a person who's going to experience the result of that chaos. And so you might've been the person that prompted me to pick this book up. Jacob, I think I heard about it from you first and then I found it and I was like, dang, this is good. And for us, yeah, the big thing was the org chart, figuring out who owns what was well, a game changer. Cause I was like, oh yeah. That was and then huge. the thing that's amazing about it is that, you know, when you set your future goals, you org chart, what's the organization that's required to reach those goals. So it actually gets you on your horse to start hiring when you actually should be hiring and not instead when it's of, instead of Yeah. Too late when you're behind it. Yeah. Like we did a quarterly meeting recently and we're like, we got to hire seven people in the next year. And we know exactly who they are, where they're going to fit in. And one time I'd have been like, I wouldn't even tell you what that plan looks like. So I want to talk about the future now. So a couple of things, both of you are fairly strong or your businesses are built around investment, real estate, rates have gone up. How do you guys adjust or pivot? So let's say I'm one of your guys' clients says, hey guys, like how would you talk to me about the current rate increases as well as investment property, given kind of what's happening? We both know that this is part of the cycle, but as a client, they're not as sophisticated usually. So what does that look like? Yeah. I mean, I think perspective is super, super important. Right. And so, you know, cost of borrowing has increased a lot in the last 12 months, but so has a lot of other things, right. You know, price of gas, groceries, just overall cost of living. Right. So this is just something that's maybe lagged a little bit. It doesn't change that it's hitting people's pocketbooks. I think starting with, you know, perspective around things, right. Cause at the end of the day, you know, if you want to buy a home or investment property, majority of people aren't doing it with cash. Right. So you need to borrow money. 
And not everyone's entitled to borrow money. So if you want to do that, there's a cost associated with it. It's just gone up, right? Part of, you know, kind of our planning and advice-based conversations always like, you know, going through like budgeting very specifically, not just what you qualify for, but the budgeting, right? And just breaking down the numbers and say, is that, you know, house for a million dollars and 800 still suitable for, you know, your cash flow and your goals right now. And we just kind of work through it in that regard. On the investment side of things, you know, what I always like to do is just go back to the big picture. You know, why are we wanting to invest? You know, typically it's just about, you know, achieving you know, your financial goals in the future, building wealth. And so, you know, if your cost of borrowing in order to acquire assets goes from 3% to 5%, you know, should that be the hurdle that stops you from trying to acquire an asset like a rental property that's going to generate a rate of return of 25 to 40% annually? If you look at long-term appreciation, principal pay down and cash flow, you know, divided by your and the return on cash payment. you put out, right? Yeah, like you, didn't, you didn't put out a full amount, so. So I think dollarizing yeah. that is just super powerful. And then, you know, it's easier said than done, obviously, right? With all the noise, the media, all those things, right? But I think, again, perspective, going back to your goals is, you know, for me personally, that's kind of what I always try to go back to and just uh, keep perspective on everything. Right, what about you, Jacob? What's your- Yeah, um, so I would say I'm not too worried about keeping the investors in a good state of mind to keep buying because you know we can't slow down the investors. You know, a lot of people we work with are very sophisticated investors and we're lucky, like, you know, when I say, you know, I'm doing 275 transactions and 80% are investors, like our clients aren't buying negative cash flow condos in downtown Toronto. They're buying duplex, triplex, fourplex in tertiary, secondary markets where they have large degrees of cash flow. So really the conversation just goes back to the fundamentals and being stricter on your fundamentals than maybe you were before. So if you're looking to do you know, a cash flowing rental property, well, you might need a larger cash flow margin to accommodate for some potential vulnerability in the interest rate market than before. So you might want to be stricter on your cash flow margins when it comes to things like a flip or something that's short term. It's a riskier time to do that. So I think honesty about that will buy you a lot more right. credibility with your clients than, than trying, trying to type to, it or something. You're spinning. Yeah, trying to spin some version. But I would say in terms of like the market and competition, I think the actual environment of the market, the macroeconomic environment is never something that's going to be too much of a concern for our businesses because we can always pivot. The challenge in everyone's business, I think, is that the competition keeps growing. This broker channel keeps getting bigger and bigger. And that means we have to do more and more and more to stand out for our clients because a million people can come in and copy our processes and provide similar service. So how do we keep reinventing ourselves um, to stand out amongst the competition versus, you know, I'm not too worried about the macro environment. Right, right. That makes a lot of sense. So another question for you guys, so maybe Josh, you answered, so where do you think is the opportunity in the next 12 months? Because I was talking to somebody recently and they said, you know, there's less competition for property, right? Because some people are now priced of the market. So there's potentially more opportunities now for people, especially if you're thinking investment than there were even six months ago, because you were competing and fighting over offers and stuff. So where do you think the opportunity is in the next 12 months? Yeah. So I think, you know, two different categories on the investment side of things, you know, like Jacob just said, being just way stricter on your criteria, getting back to your fundamentals of, you know, what you're looking for, potentially investment property, because yeah, like pick your poison, right. You know, over the last, you know, 12, 18 months plus, it's been like, you know, unpredictability in terms of what a property is going to sell for relative to its list price, multiple bids, no conditional periods and higher prices, right. But lower borrowing costs. Now it's, you know, we're coming into a time where, 
bit more predictability or you can anticipate what a property might go for, maybe not as many competing bids, a little bit more breathing room to do your assessment and kind of land on maybe long-term what is a better cost base. So I think there's a lot of opportunities there where I'm personally as an investor, keeping my eyes peeled and I'm already seeing like a lot of potential deals. Again, long-term that will be very, very strong cash flow wise, but the cash flow piece, like Jacob said, it's very important. Like normally with our clients ourselves, like we're always projecting like worst case scenarios, not just like, okay, cause the rates this today, build in some margin, build in some extra margin in terms of what your cash flow is going to look like on the, you know, the non-investment side of things, you know, a lot of people have been sitting on the sideline who decided not to buy maybe, you know, hopefully they've been squirreling away a little bit more, have a bit more, you know, capital available. It might be like, you know, a much better time to come into the market with less pressure, less competition, and just be a bit more comfortable to pull the trigger and purchase where, yeah, the cost of borrowing is up a little bit, but all the other conditions and climate might be less daunting, right? It just depends how that impacts, you know, a certain person, right? What's influencing them and what fits for their financial picture. So I think there's a lot of opportunities for maybe first time home buyers or people looking to buy their house right now. Right. Less pressure. Losing out on offers in the last six and 12 months and they're like, crap, yeah. I took a break. So yeah, it's going to be an interesting time for sure. You know, the funny thing is that like Warren Buffett always says, when people are fearful, be greedy. And when they're greedy, be fearful. People are fearful right now. And it's so difficult to go against the market and the consensus, but it's actually the profitable thing to do. Again, you guys work with a lot of sophisticated investors that get this, but the average, you know, school teacher, I can't, no thinking school teachers, but non-sophisticated person doesn't understand this. They always go where the market goes. They follow it. And the money is always in the opposite direction. Like they're running that direction. I'm going that direction. And so I think as you know, professionals, we need to be making sure we're communicating that to our clients and, our, you know, saying, Hey, look, this is the time we're going to be looking now really aggressively because there's going to be deals that weren't there six and 12 months ago. Yeah, the cost of borrowing has gone up. It's a temporary blip. And I think that's the psychology. So this has been a lot of fun. I don't normally do interviews with two people at one time, but you guys are like ping pong, you know, back and forth. <laughs> so where can people find you online? If they're interested in kind of what you guys are doing or anything, like where's the best place for them to find you? Yeah, for me, um, you know, Instagram's good, underscore Perez Josh, you know, send me a DM or you can find us and connect with us through our website. But Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn is uh, usually the best spot to connect with me directly. What about you, Jacob? Yeah, same with me. Uh, Instagram, where most of my content is at Jacob Perez 10, send me a direct message, book a call. You also, I'm doing coaching in your cohort there. Yes, uh, Scott, so you're doing coaching in the 10 Loans a Month Academy. So yeah, so we've had a lot of cool students in those cohorts and I'm learning a lot from the students too. So the more people that come in, the more I'm going to learn in return. So hit us up there or, you know, synergymortgagegroup.com, our website. Yeah. And our 10 Loans a Month Academy, we open it up you know, periodically. So if you go get on that list and then if you want to get Jacob to help you with retooling your business, you can do that. Thanks guys for coming to chat with me. Appreciate it. And it's going to be interesting to see what happens in the next year. Thanks yeah. a lot, Scott. Appreciate you having Thanks us. Thanks for having us. All right. Thanks again for listening to that episode. Hopefully you got some ideas from listening to Josh and Jacob about how they built their business. A couple inspiring, very motivated individuals, as you can tell. In this upcoming segment, I'm talking to Ben McCabe from Bloom Finance, which is the newest reverse mortgage company in Canada, and they are growing like crazy. And Ben and I talk about how Offsea has finally spoken up and said, hey, if you do reverse mortgages, here's what you need to know. And I think it's a pretty interesting conversation. Have a listen, and I'll check back in with you in a minute. Hey, Ben, welcome to Ask the Experts. Hey, Scott, good to be back. So, hey, it sounds like Offsea's made some changes to, well, they actually put some guidelines around reverse mortgages because they didn't really have it in writing. And so I think it'd be a good thing to talk about because when we were chatting, I didn't know about these things. And I think that's going to help with you know a better understanding. So why don't you uh, take us through what Offsea's kind of put in place for reverse mortgages? 
Yeah, yeah, for sure. So, I mean, there's been some anticipation that they're going to come out with some more clarity around how banks should think about reverse mortgages because effectively they've been pretty silent around reverse mortgages historically. So, you know, players in the space, we've tried to sort of fit reverse mortgages within the existing B20 guidelines, but this was sort of helpful clarification from OSFI in terms of how to think about it and what was different about reverse mortgages. Effectively, like, you know, OSFI's B20 guidelines, which are, you know, really their guidelines for how banks should think about mortgage lending and how to do the underwriting for mortgages. There's sort of five principles in play. Like, you know, the first principle is just around having a policy. The fifth principle is kind of around overall risk management. And OSFI just clear, you know, they just said that those principles fully apply. So really the meat of their sort of guidance was around, you know, principles two, three, and four, due diligence for capacity and collateral management. I can sort of touch on what they came out with there. Yeah, dumb it down for me. Tell me like I'm 10, as I always say to you. Tell me like I'm 10, man. So what do you mean? Yeah. And just so I'm clear, previous to this, there was no language specifically for reverse mortgages. So now they're like, hey, wait a second. We got these B20 guidelines. Here's a few things that are going to affect you guys. That's exactly right. You know, we had tried to fit it into the existing B20 box before, but now they've really clarified, you know, well, that's how good. to that's think about reverse mortgages. business long term because now you know what yeah. the parameters are. We have our marching orders. So me through due diligence. What do you mean? Yeah. So the first thing is basically that, you know, Osprey's indicated that lenders in the space need to ensure that borrowers can keep up with their property obligations over the life of the reverse mortgage. Lenders need to ensure that borrowers should continue to be homeowners if they get a reverse mortgage, right? So they can pay their property taxes, they can pay their home insurance. They're in a position to maintain the home over the life of the reverse mortgage. And after all of that, you know, they still have enough money left over to live. So this is really something we were already doing, but this is sort of just codified in the language now that, you know, this is something that we need to be doing. And then the second thing on this principle is that they said that reverse mortgage lenders need to be accounting for longevity risk. What does that mean? Because lenders in the reverse mortgage space, we bear 100% of the risk but the reverse mortgage balance crossing over the home value over time. Because of that, you know, that's effectively longevity risk. Like obviously an 85-year-old borrower, there's much less longevity risk than a 55-year-old borrower. And so right. for that reason, that's exactly why we give you know, much higher loan-to-value ratios for an 85-year-old than a 55-year-old. So again, this is something we were already doing, but OSPI's just sort of codified that into the regs. And they also don't want to see a bunch of reverse mortgage companies go to business because they have put these loans on their books that they're not making money, right? So yes, exactly. they want to, it's good for the market for the borrower and the lender to be basically solvent. So, okay, due diligence, what's the second thing that they implemented for reverse mortgage? Uh, so this one, so borrower capacity, this is really the most interesting one, I think is the most impactful. So effectively, you know, borrower capacity, this has to do with your, you know, your income stress test, your TDS, GDS ratios of debt service coverage. And what OSFI has come out and said is that this principle does not apply for reverse mortgages. And so this was one where there was a lot of ambiguity before because technically they said that this principle applied for all mortgages, but really for a reverse mortgage, it doesn't make a whole lot of sense, right? Because there are no payment requirements. There's no interest that needs to be paid by the borrower. So why are we doing you know, these debt service ratio calculations? So this was a really helpful clarification that this principle does not apply. From my understanding, you guys were actually on the back end anyway. It wasn't necessarily affecting your underwriting process, but you were actually running these calculations as part of your process. But now it's like, well, as long as there's property maintenance, you know, and yeah. they can stay as a homeowner, there is no income stress test. So yeah, I yeah. personally think that reverse mortgages are going to be a significantly larger market opportunity in the next two years than they have been because of a whole bunch of factors, you know, obviously rising costs of living, you know, interest rates rising. I mean, today, if we're going to date stamp this, but the rates went up 1% today, yeah. you know, so all these things are going to make people go, wait a second, I want to get off the payment treadmill. So I could see you guys are going to get busier for sure. Okay, so there's no stress test. So no due diligence for them. And then what's the kind of the third thing that they put in place? 
Yeah, so the last point of the event advice was uh, just clarity around what the loan to value cap, they effectively set a 65% loan to value cap at origination. So this is not the cap over the lifetime of the loan. If loan to value crosses over 65% over the life of the loan, that's fine. But at origination, it needs to be 65% or less. For us, you know, we've been offering up to 55%. So again, this is just a helpful clarification. Right. So do you think you guys will expand it or do you think you'll keep where you are? It's a good question. I mean, I think we have room to expand it. Our models, sort of our longevity models will give us an answer that's higher than 55% that keeps it within our risk parameters. So it's kind of, we were artificially capping it at 55%. So, uh, you know, with this guidance, I think we'll take a look at that. Something that you can consider. Okay. Yeah. This is really interesting. So it's good. Obviously it's finally said, Hey, wait a second. Reverse mortgages are a thing. We better have some guidelines around it. And now you guys have clarity, which Again, I think market share for reverse mortgages is going to explode in the next couple of years. So if you guys are listening to this, so where can they find you online? Yeah, bloomfin.ca. So where can people get a hold of you guys if they got a file they want to send to you? It's uh, info at bloomfin.ca. Right. And so again, guys, if you're listening to this, I think this just says that Aussie's paying attention to the reverse mortgage market. I believe that it's going to be an exponential opportunity growth. And you guys have a fantastic model of business. You can check them out at bloomfin.ca. Ben, thanks for coming to chat with me about this. And guys, pay attention to when this particular product can make a lot of sense for your client. Thanks, Scott. All right. Thanks again for listening. Hopefully you got some good ideas from my conversations with Josh, Jacob, and Ben. A couple quick things. If you're interested in getting on a wait list to find out about our 10 loans a month academy. So Jacob is one of our coaches. Go to 10 loans a month.com. That's the number 10. Get put on the wait list and we open our doors a few times a year. Also, if you're looking for ideas on improving your business, I'd say go to ilovemortgagebrokering.com. You can set up a free power search account, which means you can keyword search all the past episodes, every single one, jump to every moment where they talk about real financial advisor, first-time buyer, you know, down payment, and you can do amazing research that's at the tip of your fingers. It's totally free. Check it out at ilovemortgagebroken.com. And thanks again for listening to this episode. This is an I Love Mortgage Brokering production.